0: Good evening, everyone. I think we can do better than that on a cold Friday evening. Good evening, Eric. Thursday. This is Thursday. Yeah, good evening. feels like Friday. Welcome to the Rothko Chapel. Now, I want you to do something, because I've been instructed to tell you this. I had it worked in somewhere through the weekend. You all are a very privileged group of people. You know that already. But you didn't know your privilegedness just got exponentialized a notch. And that is, you all are the last formal program we're going to have in the Rothko Chapel before uh, restoration starts on Monday. So on Monday, we're actually going to be redoing the interior of the chapel. If you look up, it's kind of dark, but that's part of why it's going away. The baffle that overhangs here will be gone. There'll be a new skylight put in to really... Get us back to really back to the future of what was intended at the very, when it first opened, was a skylight without a baffle, to really have an opportunity to much more interplay with natural elements, with lights. Uh, Our famous popcorn ceiling will go away and it'll actually be back to the original plaster. Uh, There'll be all kinds of other accoutrements and changes that will really enhance the visitor's experience, the audio and the uh, not having to schlep cords around. So just remember when you're here this week uh, the next few days, take time to really think about this space and where you are. And the fact that the one thing about the Rothko chapel is it's not stayed. So that always thinking about how do we serve? How do we create this space that is really inviting, accessible to people who visit that come back to that question about spirituality, the quest for meaning, How does art, architecture, the actual physical space of a chapel or a place you're in add to that? And we hope these changes will add a lot to that Uh, journey that people are on and the spiritual journey we find ourselves. So I just want to hold that privileged moment. Now, the second thing I want to do is a house rule. We will not talk about the weather tonight and climate change. It's very tempting, especially in this town, so we're just not going to do it. That's off the table. We agreed? All right, very good. Now to the order of the evening. Since its opening in 1971, the Rothko Chapel has lived faithfully into its original purpose to be a focal point for people to gather and explore spiritual bonds common to all, to discuss problems of worldwide interest, and share a spiritual experience respectful of the beliefs no matter how diverse they are, of all who gather. Through community gatherings at times of crisis, concerts, meditations, public lectures, the Rothko Chapel has engaged critical moral and social issues that challenge our sense of being at its deepest levels. While the issues addressed have been very diverse over the almost five decades of being, The synergy between contemplation and action continues to connect all that we do, reminding us that we are all part of the same human community, and we are always stronger and more effective when we work together than we go it alone. So with that as background, it should be absolutely no surprise at all that the chapel, along with our presenting partner, the University of St. Thomas, has turned its attention to climate change one if not the moral existential issue of our day. Over the next three days, this symposium towards a better future transforming the climate crisis will explore the causes and impact of climate change with particular attention to the individual and collective perspectives, practices, and policies that we all must change and make that will result in a life-giving and sustainable planet for this and future generations. Furthermore, at the center of this symposium is a commitment that cross-sector engagement is critical. And all of us on the planning team are totally grateful, deeply grateful, for the scientific experts, the journalists, the activists, the artists, and public and private sector leaders who have helped plan and are participating in this event. Furthermore, we are really deeply in- committed and ingrained to the religious leaders who are involved, making clear that climate change is an interfaith imperative. As seen through the Pope Francis's recent encyclical on the environment, orthodox, Patriarch Bartholomew's work for many decades on the environment leading him to be known as the Green Patriarch and the not too uh, uh, distant letter from the Islamic community called Islamic declaration on the environment and many more testimonies as We all know well positive and lasting change will only happen when we learn deliberate and develop solutions together respectful of each other's perspectives, experiences, and areas of expertise. Now I want to say putting on a symposium of this magnitude is truly a community effort. So I want to spend a few minutes on some thank yous. First of all, I want to acknowledge the planning team and they're noted in your program, with special uh, gratitude for Professor Shivas Amin and Father Chris Volka and their colleagues at the University of St. Thomas. Could we give them a big round of applause? Thank you all so much. I also want to thank my colleagues here at the Rothko Chapel, the volunteers and all the staff that put in inordinate amount of hours and creativity creativity and energy to make these happen. And two people I want to lift up. I see one of them. I'm not sure I see the other. But first of all, Ashley Klemmer, who is our program director. Ashley, please stand up. Bravo. And I do see her way in the back against the painting, Kelly Johnson. Um, These two individuals, I can't tell you how many hours and sleep. I think they're dreaming about this now, which is always a good thing, you know? Um, The other group of folks that I really want to, we got to say thank you to. First of all is the Jacob and Therese Hershey Foundation the Dudley T. Doherty Foundation, Elizabeth Hammond Oliver, and Gail and Mike DeGarren for their generous financial support. Without their support, we couldn't offer this as broadly as we do to the community. We're also videotaping it, recording it. We're gonna be taking um, and making a zine or a little report from this. And it's thanks to their their support that we're able to really take this from this place and transcend it way out far beyond the walls of this sanctuary so could we give them a big round of applause thanks for all the support and i'm not sure serpik angelini is in the house tonight yeah there she is i wanted to lift up serpa because she is a neighbor and we were talking at dinner tonight that climate change is about neighbors right it's being sensitive and working with neighbors serving as a gallery called the TransArt Foundation for Art and Anthropology, a space that we've been so uh, blessed to be able to be hosted at. And she offered that space tomorrow night for the symposium for reception after the day's activity. Tomorrow's going to be a long day, but to be able to take a walk over and enjoy her space and some food and hospitality and art installation would be great. So big thanks for your uh, generous contribution. Thank you. And now, you know, this is a symposium. So normally we'd be in a hall or maybe at some tables and you'd be looking at each other. Now you're only looking at the back of each other's heads. Well, you know, this is not a one-off. This isn't like one of those things you go to and then you go home, you get to go home and God, that was sweet. No, this is about a two and a half day journey together. So I want you to do one thing before we get to the talk tonight is turn to a neighbor, particularly somebody you don't know, introduce yourself say a little bit together because for the next two and a half days you're going to be working together so just take a moment to introduce yourself I know this could go on all night but we're gonna have we're gonna have number numerous times through the next two and a half days to visit over meals uh, in between and breaks so I, I just want you to remember that an important part of the work here at the Rothko Chapel is really about building community and uh, you're contributing to that movement that, again, transcends through this building and out into the world. So thank you for taking the time to just get to know each other, a little, begin that process tonight. So it's now my privilege and pleasure to present tonight's keynote speaker, Sumini Sengupta. Her bio is in your program, but I want to read a part of it. Ms. Sengupta is the New York Times award-winning international climate reporter who tonight will share stories that she's collected through her writings around the world about the impact of climate change from diverse places. She's a published author and a George Polk Award-winning foreign correspondent. I call her a true geographic ecumenist. Having reported from the Congo, Himalayan glaciers, the streets of Baghdad, Mumbai, and just back from Costa Rica, California via Costa Rica. I mean, she's just such a great traveler. As a Times United Nations correspondent, she reported on global climate changes and women's rights and war, very diverse on that front. She grew up in India, Canada, and the United States, graduated from the University of California at Berkeley. Following her remarks, we'll have a short time for a little Q and A with with you all, and then afterwards, we'll have a, as we usually do at programs, a plaza uh, time for reception, and more time for conversation with Semini and with each other. I have one request before she gets started with her remarks: one thing to be really attentive to each other, to Semini, to the space that we're in. Would you please silence or turn off your cell phones and please refrain from taking pictures we are documenting this evening as we will throughout the uh, uh, climate change symposium so there will be online there'll be video and things that you can enjoy more so with that Samini Samuta <clears throat>
1: Thank you um, for that very kind introduction and thank you all for this warm welcome. Um, I have to uh, ask your forgiveness in advance for this froggy, groggy voice. Um, I am not infectious. I have finished my round of antibiotics, but I just don't um, feel and sound so well. Um, I want to read to you a short excerpt from one of the first stories that I wrote when I started on this beat. It's from northern Kenya, uh, near the border with Ethiopia in the Horn of Africa. And it's from around this time last year. I'll Just read a little bit from it. These barren plains of sand and stone have always known lean times. Times when the rivers run dry and the cows wither day by day until their bones are scattered under the acacia trees. But the lean times have always been followed by normal times, when it rains enough to rebuild herds, repay debts, give milk to the children, eat meat a few times each week. Times are changing, though. The Horn of Africa has become measurably drier and hotter, and scientists are finding the fingerprints of climate change. Early one morning on the banks of a dry stream with the air tasting of soot, I met a grandmother named Mariao Tede standing over a pile of dark embers making charcoal. A read of a woman who doesn't keep track of her age, she said she once had 200 goats, Enough to sell their offspring at the market and buy cornmeal for the family. Nothing much grows here, so raising livestock is the main source of income. It has been for generations. Many of her goats died in the 2011 drought, she said. Then many more in the 2017 drought. How many were left now, I asked. She held up five fingers. Five. Not enough to sell, not enough to eat, and now in the dry season, not even enough to get milk. Quote, only when it rains, I get a cup or two for the kids, she said. Four severe droughts have walloped this region in the last two decades, a rapid succession that has pushed millions of the world's poorest to the edge of survival. I spoke to Gideon Galu, a meteorologist in the capital, Nairobi rainfall is already erratic here, he said. Now it's getting significantly hotter and drier. Quote, these people live on the edge, he said. Any tilt to the poor rains and they're done. I read to you from the story because it distills for me the lessons that I am learning as I try to write about what it means to live in this remarkable moment in human history. What it means to live in a climate, with a climate, that we have changed. There are four lessons that I'm learning, um, and I wanted to share that with you. Lesson one, we are living on a hotter planet already. It's affecting all of us, some more than others. Two, we, humans, are responsible, some more than others. Three, the consequences are enormous. The consequences for ordinary people, like the ones I met in northern Kenya, and the consequences for the global economy, for global politics. Lesson four, we can fix it, sort of, some more than others. So. Let's talk about um, each of these lessons one by one. One, we live on a hotter planet already. You will hear scientists often say that we are nearly one degree Celsius, or 1.4 degrees Fahrenheit, hotter on average than before the industrial age. What does that even mean? You know, one degree, it's a, it sounds like not so much, right? But that's an average. That's an average global temperature with a very, very long tail. So what does that mean in real terms, in human terms? It means hot days are hotter. Hot days are more frequent. Nights are hotter, which is important because nighttime is when our bodies and also plants have a chance to cool down. And so hotter nights can be really debilitating and potentially very, very dangerous. Last year, when a whole bunch of places beat their own heat records, places as different as Norway, Pakistan, Hong Kong, Algeria, Los Angeles, I was writing a story about this, and I was tempted to ask, you know, is this the new normal? And I spoke to a number of scientists who said, hold up, not so much new normal. You know why? Because temperatures are still going up expect to see heat records broken again and again and again. Forgive me, I'm just gonna take a little pause here and just very briefly talk about weather versus climate. Because I think some people genuinely and some people politically um, wonder when there is a unusually cold day or a cold week like the one we had in the Northeast and the Midwest recently, You know, there's a temptation to wonder, where is that global warming that you guys were talking about? Well, weather and climate are different. One scientist described it to me like this. Weather, think of it as the clothes that you might be wearing today. Think of climate as your entire wardrobe. If it is cold one day or one week, unusually cold, that does not mean that climate change is not measurably happening Um, as one of my colleagues wrote recently if a very rich person um, digs in her pockets and has no change that day that does not mean that she or he is not rich and winters even with these unusually cold spells winters have become warmer in the last 30 years in the United States Some of the coldest parts of the country have warmed up the most. And then there's the global part of global warming, which is that 20 of the warmest years on record have all been in the last 22 years. There's a very clear long-term trend line here. Most worrying, perhaps, to scientists, the Arctic is warming very fast, much faster than the planet as a whole. The Arctic is warmer over the last five years than at any time since record-keeping began in 1900. Why is that important? Because what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. It impacts weather patterns and particularly extreme weather uh, far, far away from the Arctic because it um, influences what scientists are, are now finding. Um, it influences atmospheric circulation patterns and even that cold spell, that unusual cold spell, um, there was some uh, new research that suggested that that too was linked to the warming of the Arctic. Oceans are warming uh, measurably and expanding. Sea rise um, can be felt up and down the eastern seaboard, of course, Uh, and in places like Bangladesh, which is right across the border from where my family comes from in the east of India. uh, In Bangladesh, entire villages have been uh, sinking into the sea because of sea rise. If I were to make um, a PowerPoint presentation to you all, and I won't dare with so much Rothko enveloping us, I would um, put up a remarkable piece of journalism that my colleagues worked on last year and I invite you to later look this up. The headline was, how much hotter is your hometown than when you were born? You can click on your hometown and ask the question, how many really hot days were there the year that I was born? How many really hot days are there now in that place today? And how many hot days are there projected to be by the time, I think it was, I am, I'm 80. Um, spoiler alert, many more hot days. Um, but it's a remarkable piece of journalism that allows you to see really starkly what this means, what rising global temperatures means for, for us. Also it might give you a slightly queasy feeling um, In your stomach. So that was lesson number one. Uh, We are living on an already hotter planet. Lesson number two, this is because of human activity. The science is unimpeachable on this basic fact. As Catherine Hayhoe, who is a climate scientist at Texas Tech University, points out, Scientists have known since the 19th century that burning fossil fuels produces heat-trapping gases and wraps what she calls a blanket around the planet. Yes, this is a contentious issue in the United States, really not so contentious in most countries around the world. Still, most Americans, the vast A majority of Americans, according to public opinion surveys, are concerned about climate change. The Yale Center for Climate Change Communication, which does uh, surveys very regularly, found in its most recent survey that more than 70% agree that global warming is real. 60% say a transition to clean energy will improve economic growth. More than two-thirds support some kind of carbon tax uh, and using that money to reduce other taxes. There's one thing, though. Americans as a whole, we remain uncomfortable talking about it. Only 33% of us say they discuss it with family and friends. I'm not gonna pontificate, because I'm not really in the business of opining about why that is, but This to me suggests that there is still a great deal of reluctance about talking about climate change um, at the Thanksgiving table with your Uncle Norm. Lesson number three, the consequences are enormous. Um, And I like to think this is primarily what I report on and, and write about. I tend to see the consequences of climate change as what the military calls a threat multiplier. It supersizes risks that you may think about um, even if you don't think so much about climate change. Certainly it magnifies the risks that I've spent um, my entire career writing about. Uh, Hunger, humanitarian crises, civil unrest, conflict, forced displacement, climate change, magnifies and supersizes all of those. Last year, I um, went to India to write a story about um, how uh, even small increases in temperatures are uh, affecting people who live in already hot cities. So I went to a number of cities, including Calcutta, where my family is from. It was peak summer, June. It was 113 degrees Fahrenheit at lunchtime. That was the heat index, which is, a combination of temperature and humidity, kind of what your body actually feels. I went uh, on a shopping strip, a very popular shopping strip where my parents used to shop during the holidays, and I met a number of vendors, and they were selling everything from flip-flops to school notebooks to handkerchiefs to underwear to towels, everything. And all these vendors were sitting, trying to deal with the midday heat One had a ginormous um, uh, container of water that he was offering to anyone who needed it. Another was sitting with a wet uh, handkerchief over his head trying to cool down. Another man I met was squatting on the floor. He said he was just feeling dizzy, um, like he was going to faint. And, you know, it's very hard to do a story about, um, well, How do you feel in the heat in a very, very hot city? They kind of look at you like, what planet are you from? It's always hot, it's June. Um, What I was discovering was, as temperatures rise, even a slight amount in these very hot and humid places, poor people who were uh, not sitting in air-conditioned offices, who were not riding in air-conditioned cars, basically the vast majority of people in India, they were missing days of work because they were getting sick. They were, if they were missing days of work, sometimes they were also missing out on their day's wages. Many people make daily income. They were going to the doctor, paying out of pocket. Um, Poor people who are already quite fragile in their health were getting sicker and poorer. And this was adding up to an enormous burden on public health and on labor productivity. I came across an eye-popping study um, by researchers at MIT, at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who said that if temperatures continue to rise at their current pace, the heat and humidity, the heat index would reach this point in some cities by the end of the century, reach this point where the human body could no longer cool down. Because we have a threshold, we weren't really built for being exposed for hours at a time to certain levels of heat and humidity. And I thought about that, I mean, the the paper listed several cities in South Asia and in in the Persian Gulf including Calcutta, the city where my family is from, home to 14 million people. Those are consequences that are very far from home. What about consequences closer to home? Um, earlier this year around New Year's, uh, I did a, just did a road trip for a few days through California, which is my home state, I grew up in California. And I drove through the burn areas, um, some of the burn areas, Entire hillsides were scorched, cul-de-sacs of suburban homes were gone, just leveled, nothing standing except maybe one little structure. The state's largest utility filed for bankruptcy as a result of all the liability claims that had uh, piled up. Now, climate change did not start those fires, but by magnifying drought in California, It increased the fuel for those fires. And this last year, California, which is already fire prone, had the largest, most ruinous fire season ever. It's not just drought and a lack of rain. Climate change also increases the risk of extreme rains because think of the atmosphere warming. Think of it as, as a sponge. The atmosphere warms, holds moisture, moisture, moisture. At some point that water has to come out. And it comes out in much more it's, it's likely to come out in much more intense bursts of rainfall. In the United States uh, rains have been more intense since the early 20th century according to research from uh, U.S. government agencies. Why does this matter. Well, sometimes um, both of these risks, too little water, too much water, can have consequences that are not felt immediately. Consequences that are not even immediately foreseen. We are already seeing that some of our everyday luxuries, some of the things we eat and drink, are feeling the impact of a hotter planet. Coffee is harder to grow um, where it traditionally grows. Wild varieties of coffee, those things that seed scientists can tap into to develop new breeds. Wild varieties of coffee are fast vanishing. Uh, olive groves are having a very hard time in the Mediterranean in Europe dealing with really these scorching summers that they're not used to. We've already seen in one place or another breadbasket failures, right? Too much rain in the Philippines and a real impact on their rice harvest, or too little rain in the Middle East and a real impact on their grain harvest. What some analysts are starting to worry about is what if you have multiple breadbasket failures at one time, what happens then? Sometimes we see cascading consequences, things that really are unforeseen, um, one example is the war in Syria which I have covered both from inside um, the country and, and outside. Uh, let me be clear this, uh, Syria was not a climate change conflict but years ago there was a very long severe drought, many peasants moved from the countryside to small cities, their, they and their children had a very difficult time finding work. There were lots of grievances against the government. Protests began against a very repressive government. That government responded by shooting at protesters. A full-scale conflict developed, um, and of course the, the most devastating uh, war that, um, that certainly I have experienced. It's a threat multiplier. Conflict change magnifies and supersizes many of these risks. The Pew Research uh, Center did a a survey recently of 26 countries around the world and asked, what are the major threats to your country? In half of those countries, climate change was the number one risk cited. Um, In the United States, it wasn't the number one risk, but it was among the top three. I often think of this moment that we are in I often think of climate change as a speeding train, a racing train. It's already left the station. The process is well underway. When some of the tipping points are, we don't know, and we may not know until they've already happened, according to the scientists. This train has left the station. It is racing very, very fast um, towards a cliff. Taking all of us with it. It's racing so fast that the most recent uh, UN panel of scientists report so that we have a very very short window to slow down this train. Um, that window is 2040 which is, I, I have a 10 year old kid, you know, by 2040 she is barely um, in her early 30s just kind of starting out in life. Um, The window is very, very short, and that is, of course, what the Paris Agreement, this landmark um, agreement, uh, hailed as a huge diplomatic achievement in 2015. That is what it's designed to do, slow down that train, Um, keep levels of warming to what the scientists called well below 2 degrees Celsius. What that really means is, you know, keep the train from going over the cliff, Avert the absolute worst impacts of climate change. How are we doing on that um, global agreement? Uh, Not very well. Uh, The the United States, of course, is the only country to announce that uh, it is pulling out of the uh, Paris Agreement. It is still technically in, that's just the way the agreement works. The end of 2020 is the earliest that. The United States could actually be out of the deal. Um, The United States is nowhere close to meeting its Paris Agreement targets, and to be fair, nor are uh, many, many big industrialized countries. And even given everything we know from the scientists, greenhouse gas emissions are continuing to rise. They rose last year. So, lesson uh, four, last lesson, um, can this be fixed? Can the speeding train be slowed down? That uh, United Nations panel that uh, put out that call, that 2040 deadline, said very clearly, yes. None of this is inevitable. Uh, The train can be slowed down. Is the technology there? Is it technologically difficult? Um, Not so much. Is it politically difficult? You betcha. Lots of people are actively fixing it as we speak. There are engineers, there are inventors, there are entrepreneurs, there are seed scientists trying to make new seeds. There are organizers, there are litigators. There are children who are uh, walking out of school all over Europe um, and having school strikes to you know, get adults to pay more attention. <laughs> Is there a big magic fix? I haven't found one. Are there many big ish fixes? Yes, I've learned of many. Uh, chief among them, uh, it is really well understood among researchers, among economists, among many policymakers that to slow down the train, the world needs to get out of coal. Coal is the fuel that powered the modern industrial age. Um, I and many of us have benefited greatly from that. It is also the dirtiest fossil fuel um, and it has brought us to the brink of this uh, catastrophe. Coal is a very powerful incumbent So while it is going down in many parts of the world, coal consumption is absolutely going down very, very uh, quickly in the United States. It's also going down in Europe, in most of Europe. It is still um, very high in Asia. Uh, China is by far the world's largest coal consumer. Um, China is, uh, has, Uh, slowed down the construction of coal-fired power plants around its big cities, mainly because of public outcry over pollution, but China is very, very active in building coal-fired power plants all over the world. I visited one that China is proposing to build very near a UNESCO World Heritage Site uh, in Kenya. There are lots of renewable energy options to generate electricity. Um, energy options other than coal, and that is getting cheaper very quickly, spreading very quickly, and many uh, states in, in the U.S., including California, my home state, have set very concrete targets. California has set a target that, by 2045, its electricity will come only from renewable energy sources. There are countries around the world that have set similar targets. And when I was researching um, my presentation for you, I discovered that Fort Hood in Texas now gets over a third of its energy from renewable sources. And last year has saved American taxpayers $2.5 million um, in energy bills. Are there other big-ish Fixes. You will hear, I am sure, you've heard about uh, what's called geoengineering, basically sucking carbon from the atmosphere. There's very interesting research going on there, but it isn't quite ready for prime time. Um, there are many different kinds of things that are being uh, studied, but we're not quite there yet. There is um, much to be said about the big fix called forests low-tech fix of growing forests because forests are a carbon sink the Amazon is the world's lungs right Um, and for a while Brazil was doing a really good job of stopping deforestation until recently Um, Costa Rica where I just uh, went to report a story uh, it stopped deforestation uh, and over the last 30 years has doubled its uh, forest cover can be done Um, Regenerative agriculture, figuring out ways to put carbon back in the soil. Big-ish fix that's being tried out. On transportation, which is obviously a huge source of emissions, there's um, quite a rapid expansion of electric cars. In Norway, half of all new car sales are now electric. Uh, Careful before we all rush to become Norway because um, Norway's super rich uh, so there's lots of delicious incentives to buy electric cars but also Norway makes a lot of its money um, drilling oil and gas of course and shipping it to other parts of the world other big ish fixes um, hydrofluorocarbons HFCs it is a mouthful uh, of a of a term, it refers to uh, a greenhouse gas like on steroids. It's a very powerful greenhouse gas. It's emitted from old uh, air conditioners, phasing it down as the European Union is doing and many countries are doing. There's a global agreement to phase it down. Huge impact on bringing down emissions. Finally, um, not finally, low-hanging fruit uh, in bringing down emissions, food waste. Food waste accounts for a lot of methane emissions. Why? Because we throw, we buy too much in, um, in in the in the first world. We buy too much food, or we get these ginormous plates of food that no human being could possibly eat, and a lot of it goes into the landfill. Methane emissions in uh, the developing world. A lot of food waste comes because um, there's not good enough transportation from farm to um, to the supermarket. Finally, big-ish fix that many economists say is absolutely necessary to slow down the train, um, a carbon tax, or putting a price on pollution. I heard a fossil fuel industry executive, a former fossil fuel industry executive once say, um, we've been polluting for free since we started burning logs. Um, There are many efforts underway to put a price on pollution. In the United States. A couple of efforts were made in Washington state. They did not pass. Uh, Other countries, a handful of other countries, have um, put a price on uh, uh, carbon. Canada is rolling it out um, to all of its provinces, though it's politically quite tricky. It's due to roll it out next year. Chile, Ireland, New Zealand, a handful of countries have this in place. So these are all you know, no magic bullet, but all big-ish ways to bring down emissions fairly quickly. Scientists often say that um, the world could be almost unrecognizable very soon if the current trajectory of emissions and warming continues. I was gonna read to you from um, a poem that I keep tacked up over my desk that addresses this, but then when I was, uh, I was looking at the website for the chapel and I came across this astounding quote, you know, that's in big font uh, by Mark Rothko. And it is this, it is the magnitude, he says, the magnitude of the task in which you have involved me exceeds all of my preconceptions. And it is teaching me to extend myself beyond what I thought was possible. And I read that and I thought, wow, that is sort of this moment in human history um, that I'm writing about. Can human civilization extend itself beyond what it thought was possible or do we leave for our children not even our grandchildren I think our children um, a world that is unrecognizable thank you did that without hacking and coughing into the mic. Um, I would welcome um, a few questions, though I'm not sure how long my voice is gonna hold up. Shall I just call? (coughs) I'm gonna start back to front. There's one in the back.
0: Hi. Uh, This is maybe a dumb question, but
1: there are, in, no, in there are the, no such things as dumb questions. I'm the a US, reporter.
0: <laughs> in the U.S. news media, we always talk about degrees in Celsius, and it feels like it just confuses the issue because nobody thinks about Celsius. And you all presumably have a style guide and so on. And why do you think this is? Because it, it, it feels like it's part of the problem of communicating the mm. dimensions of the challenge ahead.
1: Look, I think it's um, difficult to understand... Uh, What really does one degree, two degrees Celsius mean? The reason why it's expressed in Celsius is that is what most of the world uses. Um, We are outliers in using Fahrenheit. Um, We're quite, quite unique. Um, But I do think, I mean the broader question is how do you, and that's what I guess I try to do and my colleagues try to do on the New York Times Climate Uh, desk is to explain what this means um, and explain the science and explain what that means for ordinary human beings. That is our mission, is to explain stuff um, to the world, including stuff that um, people may not want you to know. Uh, nationalism yeah uh, is could this be the issue that forces humanity to evolve beyond nationalism way above my pay grade Um, but uh, I mean the thing that occurs to me is post-war the world certainly did come together and create international institutions, and create international law, a whole body of international law and conventions, to say there are some things that are good for our countries and that are also good for the world. Um, I'm not sure that that was beyond nationalism. I think there was um, a recognition that uh, there's a, a set of rules that every country, agrees to abide by. That is also precisely what the Paris Agreement is designed to to do. Uh, The Paris Agreement has its share of critics. Remember, every country gets to set its own targets. It's completely voluntary, right? So the United States says, I will reduce emissions by this this much, by this date. India might say, well, I am still a developing country. I'm not going to reduce my emissions, but my emissions will will peak, uh, or has some other metric. These are voluntary targets designed to um, slow down the speeding train. So far, the voluntary targets that every country has announced is not enough to stay beyond the two degrees Celsius, 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and even those goals, many countries are not meeting. There's question in the front. <laughs> what development has brought us to, what does it really mean to say a developing country now? Yeah, I'm not sure how, um, you know, I suppose countries would define it, you know, slightly differently. I can tell you that um, anecdotally, you know, I've been to A village without electricity um, and no running water and it's no fun and it's particularly no fun for young girls who have to travel very far um, to get water often place themselves in put themselves in harm's way it is no fun for children to not be able to uh, do homework at night. It is no fun not to be able to have a fan on the most stifling afternoons, and it's certainly no fun not to have something like a refrigerator to, you know, have milk and eggs. Um, So, to have those fruits of the modern industrial era makes a real difference in people's lives and i've seen it when electricity comes to a village i've seen what happens and it is remarkable it is particularly remarkable for children so hand over here do
0: you know anything about the energy innovation and carbon dividend act you mentioned carbon taxes being one of the most efficient ways to handle this problem.
1: Um, and there, there's actually a bill in Congress right now, bipartisan, called the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, HR 763. And it starts with a carbon tax of $15 a ton, increases 15, uh, $10 a year. And it, many studies have been done and it shows it reduces carbon uh, production by about 40% by 2030. So, it, it, and it just doesn't get much press. I mean, you got the Green New Deal, it's getting a lot of press. And this is, this is actually bipartisan. It's in the Congress right now. So I'm just kind of curious if, if, if you're familiar with that. I am. I am neither a proponent nor opponent of a carbon tax. I am telling you what I hear economists, um, including a... Nobel Prize winning uh, economist uh, say is necessary. The bill that you are talking about, um, I believe we wrote a news story when it was introduced. We've certainly um, written stories about the Washington State uh, ballot effort and I bet we're gonna write about it when this bill comes up, if it comes up for a vote. But I I do think that it's really, it's quite interesting, it it will be interesting to see whether this legislation um, will will make its way through Congress in a different way than has been the case in the past, right? Uh, There is even some, my colleague Coral Davenport wrote a story today that um, you will see about debates um, within the Republican Party and within the White House about um, the politics of, of denying basic science. It was a very, very interesting story. Now, not everyone will agree on the policy measure, um, but I think it will be, and, and while it is a, a bipartisan bill right now, I bet it will be politically pretty contentious if uh, and when it moves through Capitol Hill. There's a question back there.
0: <coughs> uh, thank you so much for your talk. I have a question and I, I wanna preface it by saying this question is not in any way to, to shame you. I think the, the work that you do and that the climate team does is incredibly important and in order to bring the story of the consequences of climate change from around the world, you have to travel around the world. And so I wonder if the New York Times or the climate team in particular does anything to compensate for the carbon footprint of their travel if you purchase carbon offsets, anything like that?
1: I think it's an excellent question. Um, I try to be very uh, aware of when I have to make these long trips, how many stories do I get out of them? Um, I like to think that I'm sharing that uh, footprint partly with my readers but i do think it's a really important issue um i do not personally um offset it and um as far as i know when and yeah as far as i know i don't think that the new york times offsets my carbon footprint personally um but i think i do think it's an excellent question and one worth thinking about. Aviation fuel is, um, is a huge part of our, um, of our emissions picture. I also think that when we get hung up on one thing, like the carbon footprint of flying, I think we're sort of a little bit missing the forest for the trees because there are, as I said, a number of biggish solutions. Last question over here. <clears throat> Thank you. I'm I'm curious because I was
2: noticing as you were speaking the response that I always tend to have to climate change stuff. It's a lot, you know, it's a lot to take in. And so I'm curious
1: about how you, as a reporter and even the climate change desk at the New York Times, like how do you or y'all as a group weigh, consider, like, how sharing this information, because it's so important for people to know, and yet it very easily tips people into overwhelm, shutting down, checking out, feeling powerless, and disengaging. And so I'm curious, as you cover this and you provide this crucial information, what, what considerations do y'all give to that? How do you weigh that? How does that play into your reporting? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I um, can't really second guess how people might react, how readers might react. Our mission, my mission as a journalist is to explain the world, tell the truth, bear witness. That's what I do, um, and that's my job. Whether some people want to read it, or not want to read it, how exactly um, they might feel, I don't really have a right to, to, sec, you know, to, to second guess that. And even if no one wants to read it, you know, we chronicle history. We still have to tell these stories. It's, it's our job. Thank you very, very much for listening.
0: How you did that with that infection, I had it a few weeks ago. I think you did it because you have a calling. Your last point is very uh, telling, that it's a calling, and something about calling transcends measurements, temporal results, something it's about bigger than all of it, and I think we feel that passion, and thank you for sharing this evening. The other thing I want to say is you have really set this um, symposium in the right framework and really appreciate you touching on different parts of the country, the world, uh, different generations, uh, some of the challenges we have even at our own family dinner tables at Thanksgiving. That sounded awful, very personal. Uh, You've really set the framework and I really want to thank you because as you know, and you look at your program over the next couple of days, many of the words that you used, you see in this program, many of the constituents in different perspectives. So, Sumini, thank you for that. So we're um, around the eve of taking a break from this place and going outside. One thing I will say, I say it all the time, as we leave here in this world of Mark Rothko paintings and Philip Johnson architect and all these feet and walkers and wheelchairs that have traversed these, these tiles here with all the things that people bring in to this place. We leave here and we see Barnett Newman's iconic broken obelisk dedicated to the life, memory and living legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, which for me personally reminds me that the work that we're about, I use that word contemplation and action, Right. that sense of the inner transformation but left alone is not complete. And I think action without reflection is not complete. So here at the chapel, we have a place to put that into really um, uh, real time, in real ways. And as we said, the conversation and that sense of building movement, we as we move out onto the plaza for those who can stay, enjoy the conversation. I now wanna ask my colleague Ashley Klemmer to, to come up and just give us a little quick uh, walkthrough for tomorrow. Uh, so that uh, we understand what the uh, the order of the day will be and kind of the flow. Thanks.
2: I think I'm going to do it from here. I think everyone can see me. Good evening, everyone. So we look forward to seeing you all back uh, bright and early tomorrow morning. We're going to begin outside on the plaza from 8 to 8.30 with the Continental Breakfast, and then we'll begin promptly at 8.30 for a morning observance, which we'll start outside on the plaza and then make our way inside Um, And then we'll continue on with various activities until 8.30 p.m. tomorrow night, so it will be a long day. Um, This is gonna be your trusty guide for the entire weekend, so please make sure you have one of these and you hold on to it. And with this, you'll see all of the schedules, everything that's happening, and the various locations. So with that, I wanna welcome you guys outside on the plaza for a reception and wish you safe Uh, travels back home tonight. I hope you stay warm and we'll see you tomorrow. Thank you all.